Today I'm speaking with Lefford Fate, Director of Support Services for the town of Sumter, South Carolina. As a black Southerner and former Air Force officer, Lefford brings incredible depth to the concepts of social leadership through mental health services. Listen in as Lefford riffs on everything from law enforcement to revolutionizing the prison system to his own take on leadership in a traumatized world. This is the Super Givers Podcast. Lefford Fate coming to me from Sumter, South Carolina. Thank you so much for being with me. Hey, and thank you very much for having me. So I'd love to just jump right in where you just left off, which is essentially that you and I are here to help raise some awareness um, about mental health in the, in the specific ways that we'll discuss and hopefully promote some action in the community. Truth. All right. So for people who are just learning about you, it sounds like you, you have vast experience in the military. You're an author, speaker, leadership coach. Give us a little synopsis of what's up front for you today and, and how you are facing the world. Well, like I said, my name is Lefford Fade. I'm the support services director for the city of Sumter. And I am an, a retired American airman. And, and my goal is, is to serve. As a chief master sergeant, sergeant means to serve, and chief is the, the head server, as far as I'm concerned. And I spent a lot of time dealing with transitions and mental health issues and law enforcement in the military. And so what I want to do is continue to serve and help people because there, there's some pain in the world. There's a lot of pain in the world. And I think my responsibility is to go out there and try to ease some of that pain. So at the end of the day, if we can walk away from this and somebody can say, I feel a little bit better, I know where I can go get some help or I can have a shift in mindset, I think we've won. And what is, do you think, the this mindset shift that you most hope the world to take on at this point? I think if people can understand that they can make a difference in their own life. That it's, it's really tough and we know that bad things are gonna happen. That's just, that's life. But, it, but you can influence how you respond or react to that thing, whatever happens. And if we, if we can change our mindset, then we can work on some things. I, I know so many people, Jesse, that don't really know what they want out of life. They might understand what they don't want, but they don't really know what they want. And if I can get people thinking, what is it that I want and start working towards that thing, then they'll have a way better chance of getting it versus just being you know, blown around by the wind. And if I can get that message across, I think that would be huge. And let's back up even the perspective a little more. In the mental health work you've done, um, like it sounds like when you got called into the correctional work, yes, you realized that there were problems on a systemic level that influenced the outcomes for of mental health for people. Is that fair yes. to say? 
Yes, yes. There was there's a large percentage of people that went into any form of corrections, any from jails and prison across the country that they they were arrested more on their mental health or lack thereof than for crimes that were committed. Um, some of many people, low level crime like trespassing and public intoxication end up incarcerated. But see, some of that still is either family members or that person themselves seeking treatment early, making a, a concerted effort to try to seek treatment early would do, could have done better. And as a society, if a person can go find mental health care, uh, you just, you told me that you, you've been in a mental health licensed professional council for years and, in my city, my town, there aren't as many resources for people seeking mental health care. We're, we're in the rural area. And for, for me, legislation, citizens, just a general Q public requesting and asking and almost demanding health, mental health care for the citizens would change a lot that we go through in, this, in, this, in just my city and this, in this country together. It sounds like what you saw was essentially the default pathway for people who were brought in to the legal system but really their core issue was more their mental well-being. The default is to get into the prison system. And then, and that doesn't serve them as well. No, it, it, it doesn't serve them. When, you, when a person goes to prison for any type of treatment, that doesn't serve them well. But if we, if we, back, up to the, if we back up just a little bit more, if a person has a problem following rules, and they don't get proper care and they end up in their prison system or the jail system, they're stuck because to be quite frank, it's the prison system is a paramilitary facility. It's a corrections area, but you have to follow a strict set of rules. Many people that struggle with mental illness cannot follow those rules to the nine. And if you can't follow rules, you continue to get in trouble. And if you continue to get in trouble, you start into a cycle, a cycle of disease versus a cycle of health and wealth, a health and well-being is, uh, is what I meant. So people that end up incarcerated really are on this on this little it's like a little mouse on a on a wheel running, 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 and they can't seem to get out of that thing. That's one of the biggest things I learned when I went to the Department of Corrections. We talked a little bit before we came on about the, the TEDx Charleston talk that I did. And on that, if you think about it, a person finds themselves coming in contact with law enforcement because they cannot follow a rule. They end up incarcerated. They cannot follow a rule. Um, what, if they get out, because most people will get out within five years of going in, they got a record, they run into the police, they're going to not be able to follow direction, and then they're going to be back in there. And it's a, it's a cycle that's hard to be broken. It's and one, very hard to break. One thing I love that you brought up in that talk, and this hopefully expands out to the listener who, who may not relate to the problem being in, right in front of their face, but it really does affect everybody because it strains the system financially. It strains the system in terms of its um, community well-being. Can you talk a little bit about 
why everybody should care about this? Wow. The, the reason why everybody should care about this <laughs> is, is, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much. If you, if you want to look just on the budgetary side, on finances, it, it, it costs so much more to treat somebody inside the correctional facility than it does on the outside. And I'm not talking about a little bit, you know, there's studies that said three, four, and five times the cost. Right. But, but even, even more than that, it is a strain on families and, and communities when people are struggling with different uh, mental health issues and they're not getting help. They can act out. Now, a lot of people worry about people that are mentally ill actually hurting people. That does happen. But more often than not, somebody struggling with a mental illness will more than likely be hurt by someone else than be hurt than hurt someone else. Hmm. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, we talked a little bit about law enforcement, law enforcement that comes up on a scene when somebody is psychotic or acting out. They don't know whether to treat that person as somebody's sick or somebody's dangerous. And so that causes that causes additional problems, because whenever you're in a society where people are that concerned and that afraid for their lives, I mean, things go awry and they can go awry really fast. Yeah. Um, and. And let's even back up there. I think I told you this, and this may be jumping off subject, but as I said, um, we had 78 American airmen active duty this year commit suicide. Some of that was for stress and PTSD and just struggling and mental, mental distress. And so you have a situation where you got people that are, are making a decision to end their lives or in somebody else's life because they're so distressed. That is a huge cost on society, not just financially, but just emotional. That's an emotional thing where everybody, when everybody or a lot of people are struggling with these things and there's a stigma to getting help, that is causing a huge strain on our society. So you, and you having, you have experience as a military officer. You said, Enlisted. Right? Military enlist. I was chief master sergeant. Yes. So in your experience at that time, and then since then in the mental health side and the human services side, what do you see are the gaps? Why, why do we have more officers dying by suicide than in combat? Some of it, I think, I think there is the stigma and stigma gets thrown around a lot. But I'll, I'll tell you a little story. When I was in, I was at RAF Lake and Heath in England. I was an E-8, which is a senior enlisted leader in the military. I had 20 years in the military nearly. And I worked for a psychiatrist. I was a mental health guy working for a psychiatrist. And my dad became really ill. And I'd already lost my mother while I was in the military. And my boss, who's the colonel, came to me and said, Lefford, I know your dad's sick. How are you doing? I was terrified, Jesse, to say anything to my boss for fear that I would be taken off of deployment status. I would be looked at funny. Uh, I would be considered weak. So I tried, I, I, what, what I call at that time, I manned up. I was at the brink of breaking but I was afraid to go get help, even though I worked in the field of mental health. Mm. 
because I did not want anybody to think I was weak. I did not, I didn't want to lose my military career. I didn't want to, you know, be forced to, to leave the service. So I think that there are a lot of people out there that, that have this stigma that if they say something, if they ask for help, they, they're going to lose something. And that they also, that they feel that they're weak if they ask for help. And then they get caught in this cycle and they end up killing themselves. I'm not going to say hurt themselves. They end up killing themselves because they don't see a way out. So I think that is a, I think that is a huge reason. Um, I also think that we're not as relational as we used to. And I'm not going to get on the bandwagon the same people on social media and all this. They, they don't talk, but I am going to get on the bandwagon that is very difficult to sit down for 20 minutes and have a conversation with somebody and tell people how you really, really feel. Um, and, and that be okay. I think, I think that's something that we're losing. And until we get that back, I think we're going to continue to lose people because we're social beings. We need other people to talk to and to care about us and that we can care about them. Well, yeah. And I, and even if you look at the research by Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory saying that it's not enough just to be physically safe. Connection is actually hardwired in our nervous system as a co-indicator uh, with safety. So what yes. you're speaking to really validates that, that like even somebody who's tough and trained and has poise and composure without connection, you know, they're, they're, they can fall at the bottom as well. Yeah, I, I do a talk uh, called Everyone Communicates, Few Connect. Hmm. And, and on that talk is that everybody's talking, everybody's communicating. You can, you're doing social, you're doing telephone, you're doing texts, you can put, you can do all this stuff. But everyone communicates, but few people connect and connection is key. Knee to knee time, hand on shoulder time, how you doing looking somebody square in the eye kind of time to say, are you all right? I'm there for you and get, and get those responses back. I think you are a hundred percent right that, 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 that thing is important. And I think sometimes we're, we're, we're getting away from it and saying, I'm speaking to more people and I got these many friends or these many likes where it would be more important if you had one or two people that you were really close to that you can tell your deep, dark secrets as need be, and it would be okay. Yeah, validation is not the same thing as connection. No. Yeah. No, at all. At all. That, I like, I'm going to write that down. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> There's your next book title. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, as I said when we first dialed in you and i could get um down some of these pathways but i know yes so sorry not, no 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 i i love it i'm really interested in this in the systems especially around the military and the prison um and law enforcement so please feel free to speak to any of it as it comes up but i know you really want to have an impact on the mental health um of anybody in the world and it, what i'm curious about is if i can put my own agenda in there a little bit and you just take it where you want that it sounds like something you are implying is that there's sort of like a civilian level of leadership that could happen here. There's, there's the people and the folks who, who really, really need support. 
which we all do at times, but right now we're talking about like somebody who needs to plug into um, pretty intentional mental health support. Are you implying in a way that those of us who have the emotional bandwidth, we could do better to reach out and connect? I, I, man, that was well said. I think, and I think you're right. I think there is a level of people that really need clinical intervention, right? I think they need to get clin clinical intervention. And that is important that those resources are there for everybody. On the other side of it, I think that there are people that need connection and help and understanding early. And if they can get it early, they may not graduate to the higher level of clinical help. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and if, you, if, we, if we handled the little things now, it wouldn't get to the point where it was just horrible for people. Because I think it's, um, we used to call it gunny sacking, where little things piled on over time, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, it's just going to explode. And if we could have reached that person early, we could have we could have done some work to fix that. I know that many of our my clinician friends, they work really hard on the abnormal psychology side of it. But there's a very normal side to things where if I'm hurt and that's emotionally hurt, I need somebody I need to be able to get a little of that off my chest and be able to talk to someone or process that thing. But if I don't do that, either because I, I can't or I feel I can't, then all of that's going to come on. In the country, we will say pressure will burst a pipe. So there, there becomes a time when all that stuff piles on somebody where they can actually get to the point where they're, they may not be clinically depressed, but they can be clinically unhappy. And if you're clinically unhappy or clinically anxious or all that long enough, then that'll take you to the depression. That'll take you to the anxiety. That'll take you to the post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress. Does that make sense? The yeah. earlier we get it, the, the, the better we can do it. But I don't think we allow, I, I think we're at a place now that we don't allow people to hurt because I'm going to tell you, we were, we, I had a conversation with some people not long ago and they were talking about millennials and they were talking about snowflakes. And basically the, the idea was if somebody is struggling with something and they go talk to somebody about it, or they, they voice their opinion, they get talked down to or called a snowflake. So what that person has to do, either keep it to themselves, go underground with it. And then they, then it starts getting worse and it starts getting hurt. That is the person that's, that may very well end up dealing with depression and anxiety that could, they, if they could have voiced their, their stuff early, they could have been all right in the long run. I'm guessing this is partly why you're focusing on um, kids Young with your people, work. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I focus on a lot of people, kids especially, because I, you know, I grew up and, and, you know, cue the sad music, <laughs> but <laughs> I, <laughs> I hate, do, I hate it, but I have to. I grew up in a little town called Glenville, Georgia, and my parents, neither one graduated high school. My, 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 my dad went to the sixth grade. My mom went to the eighth grade and they, they were, they were poor. I grew up poor, funny name, didn't have a whole bunch. And I struggled a great deal. 
but and I didn't feel really good about myself. So I went years not feeling good about myself. Now, my mom loved me. My sister loved me. My parents loved me. But out in the world, I didn't feel that love. So I felt many times I felt distressed and just sad. And and I know how that felt. I joined the military and I became a part of a team. And the, the thing I love about the Air Force is when you're part of a team, you can not read. You not remake yourself, but as a part of the team, you you fit in and you talk and you got people that got your back. And I started growing based on that. And there are other people in my life. Even when I did knucklehead things and got in trouble, there was always somebody there to lift me up and tell me that I was going to be all right or that I was good. And then I start seeing those things. There are a lot, only 1% of the population going to join the military. I don't think it's right that only 1% of the people get what I got. I want to go out there and tell young people that, you know, there's nothing wrong with being sad. There's nothing wrong with failing. There's nothing wrong with being angry. Just process it, be able to talk to somebody, and you can do better if you really put in the work. And that's like 99% of the people. Now, there's some people who got some serious mental illnesses that got to deal some work and all that. But the majority of the people just need some understanding and some connection with people. And, and if we can get there early enough, we can help them become resilient or more resilient. And, and that's why I really focus on that bit, that whole, how can you shift your mindset that said, I can do this. And, and that there's somebody out there that's got my back. I think that is, I think we as a people, if we can make that work, there'll be a lot less strife in our world. Yeah. And as we mentioned earlier, you're even, finding that message hit home with, I think you said an impoverished population. Oh yeah. Um, multiple target groups, right? You're talking about people of color who have lower income. Um, and I'm sure, and I'm sure that plays a role in their mindset. It, it does because oftentimes if what you see is what you are, if you go up in a poor environment, uh, money's not there, you know, you know, don't, don't have a father figure in the home. If you, if there's, you know, drugs and alcohol and violence and all that stuff in your life, you see that as normal. And if you normalize that stuff, that, that can be detrimental to your psyche, to your, to your growth and to your mindset. And I think we owe it. I owe it to my community to be able to say there is more out there for you. And, and that you can do better. Because I think, like Maya Angelou said, if you, if you know better, you can do better. Mm. And that is one of the issues that I see a lot of young people just, they just don't think they can. And if you don't think you can, you often won't. Well, it sounds like you had to go through your own journey of that. So it, you had the opportunity, but there had to be something inside you in your teenage years, you're feeling down. You don't see a lot of hope. What was it about you that was able to activate the decision to go into the military? Because that essentially was the environment that allowed you to grow, it sounds like. Well, I mean, I, I wish I could make it sound like joining the military was this big patriotic thing. I think it was. I wanted to go to college. And I, and I could not afford it, and I didn't understand how to afford it. That's one of the things about if you come from a poverty background, if you don't know, you may not know all those avenues that some people know. 
And so the Air Force was my was my way out. My I very nearly did not go into the military because my oldest brother, Calvin, was killed in Vietnam. And because he was killed in Vietnam, there was an army post near my home. My mom and dad was not down with me going into the army. Mm. Not that they had anything against the military. It's just that their only their oldest son was killed in Vietnam. So for them, I was it was a worry that if I went, he was 19. Jesse was 19 years old. Mm. And so if you think about that, that was there in the Air Force. I had a recruiter with a great game that talked my parents in to let me go. I was only 17 years old when I joined. So it was, it was just, it was, I don't, I'm a believer and I'll never uh, apologize for it, but I think it was the grace of God, good parents and hard work that got me into the military. But this is what I believe. I think most young men and women, boys and girls, they want to do well. They want to do good stuff. They just don't know how. So I always wanted to do well. There's never been a time in my life that I said I didn't want to do well. And most people I meet, especially young people, they want to do well. But if that's all they see is is negative, if all they see is poverty, if all they see is want, I think that they can get used to that. That's that learned helplessness thing. So if we can get to them early enough to say, you can do this, you can, and you need to see somebody that, that looks like you. And this isn't a, a race thing. This isn't a gender thing. This isn't anything. But we, we model what we see. Mm-hmm. And if we see people like us doing things, we think we can do it. Because if somebody can do it, I can do it. So I think that's where it's really, really important that, that people get to see somebody that looks a little bit like them. And that's, that's been in their environment that grew up poor, that, that grew up not feeling the best about themselves. And if, if we can tell them you can do this because I was able to, and then show them a direction, not walk it out for them, but just show them a path that they can get there. I think that's how we can be hugely helpful to our communities. And, and I, and this is, I know it sounds really, really selfish, but every person that I help, it builds me just a little bit. And it feels good to be able to help people. It feels good to be able to know that you're making an impact. It feels good to give back when you've been given so much. Absolutely. And, and this is a dilemma in the practitioner world all the time. Do we, yes. do we allow ourselves to benefit from the work we're doing? And if it's translated back into more work and you can do more for people because of it, then it's not selfish at all, in my opinion. <laughs> right. Well, you, you know, one of the things, and I'll tell you this, and this, I've never admitted this on the air. <laughs> but when I, when I was working, I, I ran a geriatric mental health program for, for my local hospital. And I, as a, a counselor, I was a drug and alcohol counselor, mental health guy, I got so frustrated that we couldn't help more people that I decided to go back to school for my PhD. That was, and the reason I, and it was, I was frustrated because I couldn't help enough people with my current level. So I wanted to go get some help uh, so I can do more of that. Um, Some things changed when I ended up going to the, working for the Department of Corrections. But this is what I, this is the part that I want to admit. I realized that I can do more for people not going the clinical route. And that hurts me to my soul because I got 
uh, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, friends that do a lot of great things. But stepping out of that realm and going toe to toe and fighting with people to be an advocate, to get help and to tell people stories. I can do it now because I'm not in the system and no one can look at me and say, well, you're just doing it for you. I can fight tooth and nail for people and I can try to help people the best I can and bring other people into the game that I'm not in the clinical setting. Um, and now somebody else you may talk to may say that's backwards, but that is what I found in my life. I can get out there grassroots, walk amongst the people and say, we need help. And how can you help me? And this is what I'm going to do. And it's been, I think it's been very effective. I get in front of thousands of kids a year now where when I was in working in the mental health, I had 22,000 clients or patients that were in the department of corrections. And we had about 50 in when I was working at Toomey. Now I feel like I can impact people earlier and more not in the game. Not saying that people should get out of the game to, to do help, but I think there's a place for everybody. You alluded to it a little bit early. Whether you, a, a, a regular citizen that's a family member that has a person in your life that's struggling or suffering with mental illness or working around and being with somebody that's dealing with poverty, working with single parent homes or wherever you work, we can all from the outside in go and we can affect change. We can say, hey, congressmen, senators, mayors, county council, we need your help. This is important to us and we can make some changes. Getting on shows like this, talking about people that have mental health issues or stress issues or social issues, we want to help them and I'm in it to help. I think we can do a lot more from the outside and it's everybody's responsibility than actually doing it on the inside. Same thing with teachers. And I know this is a, a huge leap. We cannot let the teachers be the only ones that are responsible for educating our kids. All of us citizens need to get on board to help in any way that we can. Same thing with, with mental illness. Same thing with incarceration. The citizens serving our communities is going to make the biggest impact, in my humble opinion. Amen. Well, I wanted you to share some success story because you said you've, you've seen it be really powerful. What can you tell us about what you've seen so far? Wow. Um, well, I got to I got to say which side, because in, in, in the prison system, there's one. But I'll take let me let me tell you a story about this young girl. Um, we were we, we have this program is the Sumter Youth Corps and the Sumter Police Department will take 40 kids a summer and over seven weeks they will have those, those kids working in the community. They're 14, 15 year olds. They're working in the community, they get a little paycheck and they're cleaning up around, you know, for senior citizens and parks and they're making a little folding money for school clothes and, and things like that. And what we were able to do was I, I was able to, to get three hours in on a Monday per week and teach them the laws of success. And I, there's 17 principles of success that we talk about. So I spend that three hours with them every Monday. At the end of this thing, it, we did it for seven weeks. At the end of it, we were given graduation certificates. And when we were given these graduation certificates, we were saying, you know, we're calling people up, taking the pictures. 
I looked over, we call this one little girl's name, a young woman's name. And she kind of drug up and drug her feet, walked up like she couldn't be bothered. This is what I saw in my head. She couldn't be bothered. And I was getting a little bit angry. This doesn't show my best light, but I was getting a little bit angry because I was like, all this stuff we did for these kids, all this stuff. She was faking the whole time. And she just, she just, you know, just don't want to be do right. And, and I was just getting angrier and angrier and angrier. I looked over because I was going to say something. And this young girl was weeping, Jesse. Tears were coming down her face. And she was just distraught. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? This is what she said. She said, this is the first time in my life that I've been able to talk to grown people and tell them how I felt. And they listened to me and I got to talk back because in my family, you know, children are seen and not heard. I can't talk about stuff. This is the first time I've ever been able to do that. And I don't think I'll ever get to do this again. And I got to be honest, I'm, I'm 6'2", about 220 pounds. I'm a, I'm a good sized fella. I'm about to cry. I mean, I'm like, oh my God, somebody help me. <laughs> and you know, it was that thing. But the reality is we were able to, to show this group of people, but especially this young girl, that what you say matters, that you're beautifully and wonderfully made, that you can, you can be whoever you decide to work to be. And before she went through this program, she did not see that in her life. I, and, and, you know, that may not mean anything to anybody, but that meant the world to us because that helped me understand that what we were doing made an impact to one life. And that, and that young woman was telling other people about it. Her parents were appreciative. Everybody was because she felt validated because she was in a program. Now, for every good, there's a not so good. That's 40 students out of 7,000. Um, I really would like to expand this program to 1,000 kids a year instead of just 40. But wow. like I said, there's several things like that are going <clears throat> on, and we're, we're hitting things across oh. the, the city and the county, and we're doing these great things. But it's, it's small. You know, it's, just, it's almost like the starfish and the sand dollar. We're making an impact for that one but we need to expand it for more. And I think there's a story for every event going into the prison system. There, there are individual stories about how we help people that struggle with mental illness. They got on, they're on their medicine. Michael, that was in my talk. Once this guy, this one person was given their medication, they got a place to live. They got a job. This guy's taking his medication. Now he went from sleeping on park benches, to being standing in front of Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, receiving an award and working well in this community. The individual touch points, Jesse, are the things that can, can change our world. And I think every one of us can touch somebody in a way that they will benefit in the future, every one of us. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And I would argue that one person is is significant, even if it is oh. just one, I'm sure it wasn't, but look at you, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> look yeah. at the impact you're having as one person based on, um, one person touching experience. me. You're right. You know, like one person touching me, helping me. So I get a chance to help thousands of people. And so I'm everybody's got a story, but if one of us can affect 
one of us or one of us can affect two of us. Just think how that thing It's like a bad Amway scheme. But at the end of the day, we're, we're positively impacting a lot of different people in a positive way by stepping up and stepping out. Yeah. And when you talk about the finances, there's no better investment in a community than, you know, the wellness and education of, of our citizens, right? Yes, sir. That, that is a, that's a hundred percent. I, I really believe to the, to the depth of my soul that if we, if we put time into the people and get them to change their mindset, that the, they will make the money. Some I don't know how they said, if you empty your purse into your mind, your mind will fill your purse. Hmm. And it, I think that was um, Ben Franklin that said that. But if we invest in our people, there's a couple of things that happen. If you invest in a couple of, of a young person and they get their mind right and they want to work hard and they want to do very well, then they won't be truant. They'll, they'll be in school. They'll get good jobs. They'll become great taxpayers. They'll become better citizens. But if you discount people and, and allow them, and I'll say allow, <laughs> and that's tough. If you allow them to slip to the, to the dark side without trying to bring them back, that's somebody that's, they're not only not going to do well, they're going to do harm. Yeah. And, and doing, not doing well and doing harm. That's huge. Cause that's a, that's a, that's double negative right there, my friend. Well, that's right. And I, and I wish we had a third person on the interview who had some, maybe, and maybe this is you just some economic um, background. And a lot of people in our world seem to need to realize how other people affect their world. There's a lot of folks out there who seem to think that they can, they can live in isolation or in a vacuum and that if it's not them, it doesn't matter. And I want people to understand <clears throat> that it does matter. And even if they want to think selfishly, that's fine. But like higher incarceration rates, higher um, mental health rates, these things come back and hurt all of us, not only the people who are suffering. Well, you need more police. You need more law enforcement. You, uh, well, police law enforcement, the same thing. You need more prison systems. You need, you pay more property taxes. Um, you, there are so many things that you have to pay to take care. Just say if you're paying Social Security or Medicaid or Medicare, every time a young man or woman is not working and paying taxes, you, you have to pay more because those, those bills have to be paid. And every, every person that's not self-sustaining, somebody has to sustain them. It makes your, it can make your, your, it can make your, your home where you live cost more, you know, because, you know, if you live in a bad neighborhood or neighbor, let me, let me make this positive. If you don't live in the best neighborhood and there are people in that neighborhood that bring that neighborhood down, that is going to cost you your, your, your house, you're going to lose value. If you want to be selfish about anything, you can see how people that are struggling will cost you in the long run. It, it, if that's the, if that's the way people look at, and this is the, my honest, honest to God belief, Jesse, I think that we need to speak to different people based on what they care about. Right. I think sometimes we think, well, I care about it because it's a, because I'm, you know, I'm a believer and I think everybody should do well. Well, okay, that's good for me. But what about those other people? We need this. We need to t 
we need to talk about this thing in such a way that the person that we're talking to can receive it. And that's why, that's why I mention it, because even if it's a starting point, even if you don't care about the well-being of others and you care about the well-being of yourself, understand that that person's well-being is connected to your own um, in these ways. So thank you for giving those economic examples. Well, well thank you, my friend. Yeah. I appreciate it. You know, I tell you what, um, <laughs> you said this, and I couldn't say, we can, we can talk for hours on this thing, and I know we can't because of just time, but this this brings out a lot of a lot of issues i know that people do what we're doing right now but a a real life conversation with people that are living the life would be amazing a panel of people discussing these issues and not only talking about it just sitting down trying to figure okay how can we do something about it so we can make this a better community i i think i think if you ever can make that thing happen. I'll be, I'll be right in the, in the crowd doing my best because this, this is important. I mean, there, there's like 10 or 11 different little tentacles that we could have walked down and, and worked through, but you, we could talk all day until somebody grabs that thing by the horn and start working it. I think we're just bringing awareness. I think we need awareness and to go do some things. Okay. So if you were, bringing a call to action for the everyday citizen anywhere in the world, where, what's the starting point for somebody who's, who's invested in this and wants to do something? I, I think what I do, what I tell people all the time, if you're in a city or a county, go to your city and county council and, and listen to what they're doing and say, this is a concern for us because this is one thing I know about politicians. If the people are concerned, they listen. And, and I used to think that that wasn't the case, but working in city government, working at the state government and working in federal government, people pay attention to what folks' concerns are and have no voice and say, and get out there and be willing to, to put in the work. Be educated on the issues in your community. And for me personally, we'll talk about the mental health side, the suicide side. If you know somebody that is struggling or needs some help Talk to them about going to get help. Help them understand that it is nothing wrong with going to get help. Actually, that is a sign of strength when you do that. And then encourage them and be there for them. Those are the type of things. Each and every one of us, I feel, need to be aware and want to go do some stuff. So talk to your legislators. Talk to the people that are your elected officials. Get involved and then make a change in our community. As Gandhi says, be the change that you want to see in the world. Well, I love that. And I know you don't want this to become a plug for yourself. So um, I just want to invite, if people are inspired and they want to support what you're doing specifically, uh, what's the best way to support you directly? Wow. Um, the best way to support me, honestly, is to, is to go do that. Find something that you're really passionate about and go do it because that, that is my thing. I, I, I do have a book out called Pathways to a Positive Mental Attitude. It's out there on Amazon. But, but that's, not, that's not my primary focus. <laughs> uh, again, my primary focus is, is go out there and be a part of it because this is what I know, Jesse. Every one of us can have an impact on our community. And we first, we have to lead ourselves. We can, we can be the best that we can be. 
And then we can go in our community and say, this is what I love doing. I can go make impact. And if our young people see us making an impact, they realize we're teaching them that they can have an impact on their world and their community. And I think that that would be a great legacy to, to live. Uh, I met a guy named Don Green. He's the executive director of the Napoleon Hill Foundation. And he says, everybody talks about leaving a legacy. If you want to be successful, live a legacy. And so for me, if I can convince people to go out there and make impact and, and be a part of their community, that's a legacy that I'm living. Sounds great. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that you have. And of course, doing all the work that you're doing in the world and for the world, Lefford Fate. Um, we will post all of your information. So if you're listening to this, I highly recommend checking out Lefford's TED Talk on corrections. Um, there are multiple books. There's a website. We'll make sure it's all in there. And yeah, thanks for being you, man, and for showing up and doing all this. All right. Thanks, my friend. I appreciate you. You have a great day and uh, much success to you. Thank you so much. To check out more from Lefford Fate, including links to his books, TED Talks, and other services, please go to leffordfate.com. Here's the question of the day. What is one way, subtle or not, that you might be hiding behind a story of victimhood? This has been the Super Givers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. You can help me out with one of three simple actions. You can write a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell a friend about the show, or you can listen to another episode on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.